from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Lara Pierpoint, and this is Catalyst. One of the challenges of transmission is how hard it is to get new technologies on our grid. All the systems that I'm talking about are being used in other countries. We just haven't been using them in the United States yet. It seems like transmission in the U.S. just keeps fizzling out. We know we need more of it, but we can't seem to get past some of the massive barriers like local and state nimbyism, federal permitting problems, technology that hasn't fundamentally changed in decades. But there is new technology in the pipeline and new policies under consideration, and this could lead to some breakthroughs. I'm Laura Pierpoint, filling in for Shale Khan while he's out this week. I'm the CEO of Actuate Climate. It's a nonprofit focused on systems innovation to scale greenhouse gas emissions reductions. Transmission is possibly one of my favorite climate technologies because it has it all. It hasn't changed much in decades. It works on some serious physics that takes a lot of effort to understand. It's been dramatically underappreciated. And it's finally starting to get some of the attention it deserves. I recently stumbled across an Atlantic article by Robinson Meyer, and it has the perfect title. The title is, Unfortunately, I Care About Power Lines Now. It's a great article that I recommend, and I think it sums up some of the ethos of the entire climate tech community. We need more transmission to support renewables and electrification, but this is also about keeping the lights on and keeping people alive. And we saw this in moments of extreme stress over the last few years, from heat in California to freezing temperatures in Texas. Both of those examples show the value of having transmission interconnections that allow power to be shared across big distances. So how do we build it? In the U.S., we have about 640,000 miles of high-voltage transmission lines. Most of these were built in the 50s and 60s, and most of them are operating at full capacity. Last year, we built a grand 386 miles of new line, and our record for the last decade was building just over 3,500 miles in 2013. Meanwhile, the National Academies estimates that to get to net zero, we need 120,000 gigawatt miles. This means new big transmission lines by 2030. At our current building rates, we'll overshoot our net zero goals by decades. Clearly, something has got to change. Today, I'm talking to Liza Reed from the Niskanen Center about exactly that. If you're wondering whether the answer is new technology, better policy, or permitting reform, it's all of the above. Here's my conversation with Liza. It is so awesome to have you here today to talk about transmission. I'm really excited for this conversation. Thanks, Laura. I'm excited to be here. So I have to tell you a story, which is that when I first started at the Department of Energy ages ago, uh, one of the first things I did was go down to the Office of Electricity, and we were talking about some of the work that they were doing down there and these really cool projects on storage, on resilience. And I said, where are all the cool projects where you're investing in new transmission technologies? And this guy who is super famous and like, you know, really established in this field looked at me like I had three heads and basically was like, what do you mean new technology? Like, this isn't this isn't the space where we do new technology. And of course, that has changed dramatically in the many years since then. So I'm really excited to dig into that today. No, that's exactly right. And I, I love that story that you were already asking about transmission. You were ahead of the curve. Right? You <laughs> I knew. Was just, you I was knew just that this is what we needed. Exactly. <laughs> and, and expecting and hoping. But let's talk about, let's start by talking about transmission as it exists today. So, so really, what does our transmission grid look like here in the United States? And we'll talk about this a bit globally, too. Um, Let's talk about kind of how it works, what it does, and then we'll get into the technologies that we're currently relying on. Yeah, absolutely. 
So our transmission system broadly, it's moving bulk power, right? So the trans- the electricity lines that you see sort of in your neighborhood, um, if they're not buried, you know, any overhead lines that, that we see sort of locally are usually distribution lines, right? So that's a lower voltage. And, and I don't want to dive too much into the technical here, but transmission are sort of the bigger lines that are moving more power. So these are often between cities, um, and from generation to load. So from where the power is being generated, like the power plant, the solar farm, the wind farm, to um, sort of just to like outside the city, right? And that's the transmission system. And then distribution is what gets it sort of to, to everybody's home and building, et cetera. So that's sort of the, the broad definition of transmission. And even within transmission, there's a couple of different buckets. And, and usually going back to voltage, they're they're bucketed by their voltage, which is loosely how big they are too, right? So like literally how tall the tower is, but then also that's a reflection of how much power they can move. So you want to move a lot of power long distances. You need higher voltage. You need those bigger lines because they're much more efficient. So we've got about 400,000, just over 400,000 miles of transmission lines in our in this country. And most of them are lower voltage. So they're still like fairly local in terms of how far they can move power. I think it's two thirds of them. Um, actually, three quarters of them are less than 300 kilovolts. And only 25% of them are that high power, high capacity that can really move things long distances. Great. Okay. So that's so that's what we've got. We've got this super highway of transmission lines all across the country. And how does this look globally? Are, do we see pretty much the same kind of thing where you have big developed grids in other countries? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the Europe has a similar sort of developed grid as we do, and, the, and they are looking at similar challenges that the U.S. is having and how they're sharing power and how they're integrating renewable resources, which require more of those long distance, bigger capacity lines. China had a massive build out of transmission. Going back to technology, most of our grid, almost all of our grid is alternating current. That's the AC I was referring to. Um, and most grids around the world are AC. China did a massive DC build-out over the past couple of decades. So they have these huge hundreds of miles, multiple hundreds of mile DC lines moving power across different parts of the country and even interconnecting with each other. Um, so there's sort of the major kind of developed grids um, in terms of sort of the technology and issues that that we're talking about today. That's great. Okay, and just to kind of parse for for our listeners here, AC alternating current, DC direct current. We've got a little bit of DC in the world, a lot of AC here in the United States. Can you explain what the differences are among those two basic technologies? We'll get into more of the details later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, AC, is, um, AC is the sine waves. If anybody remembers their physics classes, Right, AC, the alternating current is is it's alternating, right? It's it's going up and it's going down. Um, it's a fascinating, complex physics process. Um, and DC is direct current, so it's not alternating at all. It, it is staying the same at all times. Functionally, what it means for the grid um, is that DC power can move longer distances more easily. So that alternating current creates some flow issues. Uh, but when you know exactly sort of what the current and what the voltage are going to be all the time, like you have in DC, uh, you can move more power longer distances a lot easier. So you get much higher capacity in a direct current system. But it's newer. In the history of electricity transmission, we're looking at 140 years that we've had um, high-voltage alternating current solutions. 
Um, we haven't had direct current for that long, right? So the reason that Thomas Edison didn't succeed with a direct current grid is that he couldn't get sort of the high voltage opportunities, that lower loss system. Um, that didn't come around till the 1940s, right? And then a new technology in the 70s and then the newest technology um, in, in, the two, in the 2000s, 2020s. So uh, much, much slower development process for direct current than we've had for alternating current. Okay, so transmission technology, we've got alternating current and direct current. Let's talk a little bit about the functional, just physical wires themselves and what they're made out of. Can you say a little bit about that? You know, what's actually inside the cable? What's outside? What is it that we're looking at when we look up at our really cool transmission lines that we're always trying to seek out wherever we are? Yeah, when... When, when you're looking at these transmission lines, mostly what you're looking at is aluminum. It's a whole lot of aluminum. Uh, copper is the most conductive of the metals. Aluminum is less conductive than copper, but it's a lot lighter and it's a lot cheaper, right? And so sort of quickly that, that math worked out, that sort of economics worked out, that it makes far more sense to be making these lines out of aluminum. Um, so there's a couple of different sort of traditional kinds of, of electricity transmission lines. ACSR is kind of the default, and that stands for aluminum conductor steel ACS, aluminum conductor steel reinforced. And so there's steel down the middle, right? And the core is this piece of steel, and then these aluminum wires wrap around that steel core. And the importance of that steel core is that it it is the structure of the line. The aluminum is moving the power back and forth, but the steel is what's keeping that line in place. Um, as electricity flows through a line, it heats up. And that heat causes the aluminum to expand, right? So you've got this hot aluminum, and what happens is the line like physically sags, right? There's just so much expansion from the heat. The steel is essential. That core component of every transmission line is essential to limiting that sag and kind of maintaining the integrity of the line, right? So that the aluminum is just moving the electrons again, and the steel is providing the strength. That's a traditional sort of, as I said, base transmission line is this ACSR, aluminum conductor steel reinforced. There's very cool new core technologies. We've got more than steel. We've got things that are stronger than steel now, right? Um, and so aluminum conductor composite core um, is another option where you're looking at you know, some new materials, some composite materials that are providing that strength in the transmission line. And as a result, you can send way more power down the line because the aluminum can get hotter and that core can support even more sag, right? It's it's not um it, it it's not running into the same barriers that that steel is. You've just got a much stronger core. And so that's one of the kind of opportunities that we have as we build a new transmission is to build it with better materials. And, and be able to move more power um, along sort of the same corridors and the same lines. Right. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And of course, this isn't even just about more power, right? It's also about the fact that as climate change is happening, we're getting hotter and hotter days, which also help to heat up the lines and increase sag. And as we know well here in California, if you get a lot of sagging lines that ultimately start falling, that can be a pretty major source of wildfires. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the heat, I mean, it's so interesting that the environment of the transmission line, just like you said, impacts how much power it, it can send, right? Because if you're already sagging just from the ambient temperature, you can't send that much more power, right? So all the ways that we can figure out how to send more power and less sag is, is essential. Okay. 
Great. Well, so we're going to talk a bit more in a second about kind of the future of individual transmission line technologies. But right now, let's start at kind of the big systems level. So you described, you know, we have the big bulk power transmission system. I like to think of it as like big, huge generators and big, huge lines that take all of that power to major load centers, where then they go across a whole bunch of distribution lines. And of course, in the United States, we've got basically three main electrical grids. We've got the Eastern Interconnect, the Western Interconnect, and then Texas as its own special flower. Um, So one of the big things that we talk about a lot in transmission and in technology are interconnects. Um, And so those are places where you're, you know, sort of tying the grid together, whether it's a generation resource, tying it onto the grid, or maybe tying across some of those big interconnects. Um, So let's start by talking a little bit about that. So interconnects across the big grids, how many are there? Why do we have them there? How are they helpful? Yeah, there, there are some. They should be a lot bigger. In fact, we recently did a data analysis to show sort of how the grids are interconnected and, and illustrate that compared to the amount of energy that the grids are using, these interconnects are just incredibly small, right? They really haven't grown over time. So why they're helpful? And when we think about the eastern and the western interconnect, that is a huge span of miles right across the United States and maintaining an electrical system, right, that sinusoid across that those thousands of miles um, is actually a, a very difficult stability problem, right, that the, you have this whole time delay and, and, and you have issues with maintaining that integrity. And so instead, the East and the West are stitched together with what's called back-to-back high-voltage direct current lines. So they're not even lines, right? They're actually stations, right? They convert the Western interconnect from AC to DC, then convert it right back to AC again to transfer power between the East and the West. Uh, So there's a handful of these sort of down that Eastern and Western um, interconnection seam, as you were saying, that that move power back and forth. And then ERCOT is incredibly isolated. So there's one or two. um, ERCOT has some minimal back-to-back and some minimal AC at sort of very low voltage, but um, incredibly isolated. I think less than 1% of of their load or something um, is available via transmission, could be supported by external transmission capacity, right? So the reason that these interconnects are so important is, is to support your load, right? I mean, in an ideal world, you're able to supply all the power that you need from your own footprint, but we've got diverse energy resources in the United States. And if you really want to pursue least cost energy for everybody, then we want to be opening up those markets, right? Giving everybody access to all of the low cost energy resources that we have in the US. And the only way to do that is to electrically connect them, right? And these interconnections allow for that flow back and forth so that when one area is experiencing greater electrical need, you know, they can be supported by their neighboring areas. Right. Well, so let's talk about Texas for a second, because as you mentioned, Texas kind of bucks that trend. And so they've got their own grid with relatively few interconnects. And there's some good reasons why they chose that, right? I think they really, you know, as I understand it, the fact that they don't interconnect across state lines effectively means that they get to regulate their own grid and they're not subject to nearly as much federal jurisdiction as kind of the rest of the grid is, um, which means they can do some really cool things with their market. And they've been able to support a lot of renewables expansion. There's some really interesting things that Texas does that uh, that a lot of the other you know system operators are actually thinking about modeling in the future. Um, so you know some advantages uh, to what they've done with their grid for sure, um, but also some disadvantages. And so I think we have to talk for a second about what happened a couple of years ago during that winter cold snap. 
um, when when really they had some trouble getting electricity on their home grid, right? And a lot of folks lost power during a time when they really needed heat. So can you say a bit about, about kind of the disadvantages of not interconnecting and and how that discussion is currently playing out in Texas? Like is there more are there more calls for Texas to to actually think about interconnecting with the rest of the of the country's grids? Yeah, so you did a great job sort of explaining why ERCOT has separated itself because it is your what you said is exactly right. It is not completely um devoid of federal oversight, right? There is some, but it is able to kind of limit that oversight and have some independence in how they make their decisions. But there are downsides, which is that lack of interconnection means lack of support, right? Like you you can't help out your friends and neighbors and your friends and neighbors can't help you out. So Texas was hit by winter storm Uri in February 2021, right? Incredibly cold temperatures. And there were many different impacts on the grid and on the generation supply. And a lot of the natural gas wasn't able to provide power. So Texas has a lot of diversity even within their own footprint. As you said, they've got natural gas, but they've had a ton of renewable energy build out in the last two decades as well. So nearly all of the energy generation sources were unable to meet their expected capacity, right? Their expected generation capacity. So there's this huge shortfall, right? Where you're not getting the energy generation that's necessary to run the grid and there's an incredible energy demand, right? I mean, it is cold and and people are doing what they can to to stay warm and, and that requires a lot more energy resources. Um, there was a big gap in natural gas because there was issues with sort of freezing of the systems and even being able to transport the natural gas. So Texas was left in a real energy crunch and they were stuck, right? So normally what happens in sort of an extreme weather situation is that you prepare for rolling blackouts. And the whole point of rolling blackouts at the risk of being glib is that they roll, right? So I get a blackout for a period of time, and then you get a blackout for a period of time, and then someone else gets a blackout for a period of time, right? So it, it sh- it's supposed to shift um, so that nobody is without power for long periods of time or days, and it's much easier to survive when you have, you know, you, you know that your fridge can stay cool, right, some number of hours, or, or you can heat your house, right? Well, what happened in Texas is that they had so little energy that they couldn't roll the blackouts, right? So the intention was to be able to roll, but they had to shut, in fact, many more circuits off than than you would want to, and they couldn't turn them back on because there wasn't energy to turn those circuits back on. There's also kind of an an interesting challenge here with how much insight, and this sort of (laughs) bleeds into what I'm sure we'll talk about later, but how much insight we have. Um, into grid control, right, that they didn't want to shut off a hospital. And so the entire system next to a hospital got to maintain their energy, right? If you can isolate different parts of the grid, then again, you can roll those blackouts instead of everyone who lives next to a hospital having power and everyone not living next to a hospital not having power. So they weren't able to roll these blackouts and they weren't able to bring in energy. And I think it's really important to look at what was happening on the other grids. So the states to the north and the states to the northeast were also experiencing extreme weather, right? It was not exclusive to Texas. And even the parts of Texas that were not run by ERCOT, especially, right, were experiencing this extreme weather, but did not have this massive multi-day blackout problem uh, because they had so much more power available and were able to share it. So if you look at, there's some really interesting maps out there that show how the power moved, right, like how much 
the sort of mid-Atlantic states were selling power to the Midwest states and how much the Midwest states were sending power to the Great Plains states. And so they were able to roll those blackouts, right? Directly to the north of Texas, there were blackouts. they, They still had an energy gap, but they were able to roll them, right? And so they didn't see the, you know, billions in economic damage, and they didn't see the deaths, quite frankly. I mean, over 100 people died um, in Texas as a result of of their inability to get more power on the grid. Right. Well, and this sounds like this is going to become increasingly important as climate change, you know, means that we need to be more resilient. And also, hopefully, you know, as we start to rely on renewable power, where there's going to be really big differences in the availability of resources. So does that mean that we're going to see a whole lot of additional interconnects popping up, at least, you know, across the eastern and western interconnect and with Mexico and Canada? Or is that TBD? That's that's my desire. <laughs> that's what I'd like to see, would see happen. And there's a lot of developers who want to see that happen as well, right? Because it goes to the market access question. It goes to resilience and reliability, right? There's all these reasons that that is incredibly valuable, and we absolutely we sh- should be pushing for that. Um, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission just had a task force. So they, all year, for the past 12 months, they've been doing this really interesting task force with FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, um, those five commissioners, and then 10 commissioners from NARUC. So they're state-level commissioners from the National Association of Regulated Utility Commissioners. Um, And they had a a whole session in July talking about this interregional transmission, because it's not even just the three grids that you mentioned, right? The way that our grid is actually managed is is even smaller grids within that. Um, And so the, yeah, I was saying earlier, those Great Plains states, right, are are largely under one sort of grid operator and then the Midwest or the mid-continent because it technically goes all the way down south to Louisiana, right? That's another grid operator. The mid-Atlantic states, right? So all of these grid operators also have really different abilities to transfer power between each other. Um, and so we really do need to see so much more um, transmission connecting these regions, not just the east and west in Texas, but all the grids um, in between. It, it's absolutely essential, um, but getting the policies in place is actually one of the challenges for moving that forward. And of course, then the other kind of, of grid interconnection that we often talk about is when we get big new generation on the grid, right? Because there's a specific interconnection and kind of a tie you have to make there. So let's talk about that because we need a lot more clean power. A lot of that's going to be, you know, variable renewables. So what does it look like to try to get that interconnected? I know that, you know, we, I've heard, for example, about there being really long queues to do interconnects for new power. Um, so why is that the case? And are there any new technologies that can kind of help move us along in terms of interconnecting? new power when we need it. Yeah, absolutely. There's more than, I want to say there's more than a terawatt of energy, of of energy generation in these queues across the United States that aren't able to come online because we don't have the necessary transmission to support them. So what happens is if you're a generator and you want to add yourself to the grid, there's an application process, right? (laughs) You raise your hand and you say, please, please, can I be added to the grid? Uh, And the grid operator does an analysis, uh, or at least is supposed to do an analysis of what what impacts that generation being added exactly where it wants to be added is going to have on power flow. Um, And and then if there's impacts that that could make the power, that could cause problems in the existing power flow, then, and they need to add more transmission, then that transmission needs to be kind of identified and built 
so that this generation capacity can be added. And that seems pretty straightforward, <laughs> but it has gotten very complex. Uh, and so those queues, you know, were used to be a couple of years and now are two are four years or longer just to get out of the queue. And so you have a lot of projects dropping out of the queue and it there's this sort of frustrating incentive to get in the queue because you know it's going to take four years. Uh, and so there's this other, you know, issue of is everybody in the queue a, a project that's actually going to get to completion, right? Or are they just holding a place in the queue? Well, it's hard to tell anymore, right? If, if it's four years until you can get your interconnection, have you dropped out because you were just a placeholder that couldn't turn into a project? Or have you dropped out because this was too long, right? And, and, and you couldn't line up all the capital and, and sort of maintain everything to, to get connected. Uh, so these interconnection issues are, are a huge problem, and the lack of transmission is one of the issues, right? We need more transmission to move more power around from more and different places than we have historically. We used to just move coal on trains to coal plants, right? And we could move natural gas on natural gas pipelines to natural gas plants. But now we need to move the transmission, we need to move the power from where it is via electrons, right? That's got to be a transmission line. So we need more transmission built so that we can get all this power interconnected. As far as technology, um, absolutely. There's there's really just kind of some fascinating technologies that we could and should be using um, to get more clean energy onto our grid. And these and these will help with more transmission generally, right? So there's a there's a range, right? So there's some technologies that help us use our transmission better, right? So we can get more effective use of our existing grid so that we can get more generation faster, right? Quicker than it takes to build a new transmission line. And then there's technologies that just make our trans that make new transmission lines better, right? So there's there's both of them. Uh, on the all the way back on the study side, before you even get into the technology itself, there's technologies that make there's like software that makes the study itself better, right? That that sort of automates that they've often been manual studies. Um, and that really works for natural gas plants, right, for example. But if you're trying to model a, a variable energy resource like wind or solar, those manual systems, you know, can't always capture the dynamics in the same way. I was talking to um, one, one of these technology companies, Pearl Street, that has found a way to automate some of these studies. So if there's an error, they sort of can tweak more parameters and figure out like, was this error because there's a transmission problem or was this error because our software isn't used to dealing with variable renewable energy resources? And like, that is a, that is a problem that we need to fix. Yeah, right? Like if the software can't handle the generation types that we have, then, then we need better software, right? So that's one that I think is like fascinating and almost depressing, right? <laughs> that, we, that like that's something we're trying to fix is just getting the studies done faster, uh, b because of sort of the old um, archaic assumptions in, in, in how we think about transmission systems. But then there's also hardware solutions. So there's a couple of different ways that we can use our existing transmission system better. Um, one of these, you know, we talked about how the heat of the heat of the day can can minimize the amount of transmission that you the power you can send via transmission. Well, there's a company called Line Vision. There's a couple of different companies, but one of them is Line Vision that senses essentially the microclimate, right? So instead of calling your your weather person, your meteorologist, <laughs> to figure out how much power you can send at a line by line basis, 
you know what's the temperature, what's the wind even, right? So so you can sort of override that bulk analysis of how much power you can send and say, oh, actually, I know that this line can take more power. When it comes to interconnection queues itself, there's um, there's ways to manage the power flow in, in our transmission system. So the way that power flows is the way that everything flows, least resistance, right? Electrons go wherever they can as easily as they can, but there's ways that you can change that. So there's technologies like smart wires, uh, develops these flexible alternating current transmission systems. They're fax devices. <laughs> um, and they basically, for all intents and purposes, change the resistance of a line. Very technically, for the folks who are listening who care about this, right, you're changing inductance and capacitance. You're changing different parameters of the line. It's not technically resistance, uh, but it makes it harder for the electrons to flow in one way. And so they automatically route themselves to another way. This is a, a pretty straightforward way to not only use our existing lines better, but get more generation on the system, right? Because if if the default flow shows that we need transmission in different places, but that's going to take a couple of years to build, well, just use this fax device, right, to move it around as needed when needed. Um, so those are a couple of technologies that make it that should make it easier if we deploy them more and more effectively. Uh, to move power around the grid and get more interconnected. Uh, there's a question of new technologies for new transmission. So there's the the lines I was talking about, right, where you can use these kind of composite cores so you can move more power. So instead of maybe a couple of new transmission lines, maybe you just need one, um, or even reconductoring with those. So it's a lot faster to add capacity to the grid by just taking out old steel reinforced lines and replacing them with composite reinforced lines. You can get multiple times the capacity. I think 2x is a number that, that I hear most uh, hear quoted the most. And you, you're not even building anything new, right? You're just replacing the line with something that can carry more. Um, so that's one option. You can use that in rebuilding lines or building new lines. And then, of course, HVDC, right? That's, that's my favorite technology. I wrote a whole dissertation on that technology. Uh, because you could move more power, as I already said, sort of longer distances. But HVDC is also more controllable, right? Because it's that direct current, right? It's the stable current and, and, and flatline current and voltage. You don't have to control a sinusoid and worry about stability, you can do what's called dispatching power, right? You can sort of move it exactly where you want it to go. Um, and, and that's a lot more effective way to manage our transmission system as well. This is awesome. So I think in one full swoop, you've described technologies to help us use our existing transmission grid in a better way and some of the technologies that we need to build new transmission and have sufficiently dispelled the notion that there's nothing new technology-wise in transmission. It sounds like there is a lot that's new and that's so great. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And what's also, like, a little important to remember here is that there's also, like, this new-to-who question, because one of the challenges of transmission is how hard it is to get new technologies on our grid. All the systems that I'm talking about are being used in other countries. We just haven't been using them in the United States yet. And I just think that's important to emphasize, right, that, you know, these probably existed when you were down at the Office of Electricity asking what we could be doing and we weren't looking at them then, and we're only slowly looking at them now. Right. And so why is that, that other countries are farther ahead? Is it because they're they're 
new regions where they're building out their grid and they're kind of starting fresher than we are? Or is there some other reason that they've been more focused on these kinds of technologies? There's a couple of different reasons. And, you know, part of it is just complex politics. But if you think about, you know, Europe is using a lot more of these, like the fax devices I was saying, right, to control sort of where power flows on the grid. The U.S. has had a lot of sort of benefits of energy diversity. And they've also had the benefits of land to build transmission lines on, right? And so the idea of having to maximize our existing transmission system hasn't been as salient in the past as it is now, right? We've had other ways of moving energy around, and we've, quite frankly, had more land to move things around. So that's one of the pieces. The other is um, a bit of an incentive structure issue, so I don't want to dive too much into utility regulation today, but you can get... uh, a rate of return on new capital expenditures, which is new transmission lines. But you don't get that same benefit as an investor-owned utility for just maximizing what you already have in your system, right, in most places, right? And so other countries have looked at different ways of incentivizing using the existing infrastructure that you already have and, and, and how to make that attractive from an investment perspective. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. One of my great frustrations in my previous life as a utility was that at the time, you know, we could make investments in anything that was a hardware-related expense, but something that was like software as a service was not treated the same way. You couldn't make money the same way on it. And it was sort of like, seems like a very 19th century approach to doing things. But it's okay. We're we're working on it. We're getting through these things. Um, okay, so that's so that's really great. Let's talk a bit um, about some of the additional new technologies that are out there. So first of all, medium voltage DC. You've talked a little bit about high voltage uh, DC, but what's going on with the medium voltage world? Why why is that something that folks are talking about these days? Yeah, medium voltage is very much in the sort of academic space, but I think we're going to see it moving more into the grid space, right? Where medium voltage is lower than high voltage, it's higher than low voltage. <laughs> it's like the Goldilocks of voltages. Um, and, and it's, you know, probably going to be at that transmission distribution interface is where we might see that medium voltage DC or even within the distribution system. And going back to what I said about high voltage, right, DC is more controllable, right? And so putting more kind of easily controllable links and lines at that interface and even within the distribution system is going to be, I I think, a real opportunity in the coming decades. You know, we don't have those systems right now. For the most part, there's a cost question, right? We're still figuring out high voltage DC and the cost effectiveness of that and getting used to building it. Um, we've got a lot of low voltage DC. I'm I'm talking on one right now, <laughs> right? We've got low voltage DC everywhere. And that's why, even though we're not seeing a lot of movement yet in implementing medium voltage DC, I think on the horizon, that could be something we see uh, because it just sort of naturally connects the two pairs. Okay. Got it. So, okay. And again, we're really talking about transmission. You know, the the goals here are to basically enable new kinds of generation to come onto the grid, clean sources of generation, in addition to obviously making sure that our grid stays super reliable. So continuing into the technologies that help us do that. So we talk a lot about non-wires alternatives within the utility business. So that, I think, is a really generic class of things that you can do that are not build a transmission line. But do you have more to say about some of the technologies involved in non-wires alternatives that, that we have? haven't covered so far? Uh, I mean, I think I'll add that 
there's there's a whole host of them. I've only named a couple, but there's a whole host of companies working in this non-wires alternative space. There's even sort of topology management, which is even further back than controlling an individual line, right? Where you're looking at how power is getting dispatched and, and looking at patterns and figuring out different ways to maximize dispatch across the transmission system. So there's there's lots of different levels at which these non-wires alternatives can be used and should be used. I think it's important to also recognize how much more transmission we need, right? So it, it sometimes can seem like we're at odds with each other, the non-wires alternatives versus transmission, but you'll never find a transmission advocate who says we don't need non-wires alternatives. We're absolutely for all of it, right? But the scale that we need to decarbonize the electricity system means we need to get twice as much transmission capacity or more in the coming decades. So that's going to be a lot of new transmission and then hopefully a lot of ways to to better use the transmission that we have and that we're adding. Right. That makes sense. I know a lot, you know, again, in the utility world, we would talk about non-wires alternatives as a way to help you defer the need for different kinds of infrastructure investments. It doesn't mean that you never have to build that transmission line or that substation, but it can really enable you to take some more time to figure out your needs to save up money to do, to do what you need to do a little bit later down the road, which is hugely valuable, particularly with these four to five year queue interconnection times, right? That's right. That's exactly right. And when we think about deferring, right, it, it gets it can get the clean energy on the grid and it takes a long time to build a transmission line right now. Right. So it's also not even necessarily deferring anymore. It's filling in while we're waiting for the new transmission line to come on. Okay, great. So a couple of other approaches, um, again, getting at the challenge that it's really hard to build a transmission line. One is undergrounding. And uh, and as we were talking about this, I was like, wait, really? People are talking about undergrounding bulk transmission lines? And you tell me, yes, really. So tell me more about this. It seems like a really expensive way to go, but what's the benefit? Where are we talking about doing this? Uh, we could do it lots of different places. So most recently, there was a study, um, Next Gen Highways did a study in Minnesota for the Minnesota Department of Transportation specifically looking at undergrounding along highways, right? Because we've already got that right of way, right? And the land has already been disturbed. So there's lots of kind of policy reasons and um, anti-NIMBY reasons, right? That you're, you're upsetting fewer people or possibly no people, ideally, right? If you can underground along highways. We already underground a lot of electricity in the U.S. It's just mostly transmit. Uh, it's mostly distribution, right? A lot of cities, right, have undergrounded distribution systems. Transmission is becoming more feasible to underground because of the advances that we have in high voltage direct current. So this, the newest HVDC technology, again, it's only a couple decades old, so it's like a baby, according to the United States perspective on, on electricity technology. Uh, but that technology is a lot easier to interface with the AC grid. So it's called voltage source conversion. It's transistor-based, again, for, for folks who are interested in that level of detail. Uh, but it's, it's easier to interface with the AC grid so you can think about putting DC in more places. The reason DC is important is that, going back to physics, undergrounding AC is actually incredibly difficult. You can only go 40 to 100 miles, kind of depending on how much how you design the system and how you want to control it, because the ground itself like actually creates stability issues for moving AC power. DC doesn't have this problem, but when DC was sort of incredibly expensive and difficult to integrate into the AC grid, you're only looking at spur lines from, you know, a dam 
right into a city. And so you had to worry less about undergrounding. As we try to expand transmission and get more transmission and potentially like a nation-spanning macro grid, right? If we can get interconnected, high-voltage direct current lines across the country to move power back and forth, you know, that you can think differently about transmission. You can think differently about DC. So DC can move a ton more power on the same right-of-way. If you underground, for example, in a highway, you're now not requiring new right-of-way, you're using your existing right-of-way. You're moving a ton of power. And so there's some estimates out there that you might actually be closer to parity as opposed to the sort of 5 to 10x that's normally cited. It could be closer to 1 to 2x if you think about power over distance. So mile by mile, you're more expensive. But gigawatt mile by gigawatt mile, you might actually be a lot closer to parity. Now, it's still to be determined if that's the case, right? We have to build this stuff um, to figure it out. And, and, and quite frankly, I think we should. I think we should just fund some test lines to, to figure out how difficult is this to underground. Um, but certainly, you know, Europe is looking at undergrounding for similar reasons that they've had to maximize their existing transmission system. Um, we underground lots of things in this country. We underground lots of other infrastructure um, and so figuring out what it would take for electricity transmission and where it would best fit is is actually a, a, a burgeoning conversation, if you will, because um, then you don't have to see the tall towers too, right? There's lots of benefits and figuring out that cost equation is going to be essential for, for actually seeing if we can realize this opportunity. Yeah, so it sounds like a little more expensive to build, but potentially some huge benefits. Um, but what about the OPEX? Is the OPEX going to be a lot more expensive? I mean, it seems like if something goes wrong underground, it's a lot harder to detect and fix it. Is that... Is that something that folks are concerned about or not as much? Well, I mean, when it comes to undergrounding, folks are concerned about everything. <laughs> you, can, you can find someone who's opposed to every part of it. Uh, the operations is really, it's, it's an interesting question. You know, we have fiber optics now, right, that in theory you, could, you should, right, if you're undergrounding, you should be installing sensors that can tell you exactly where the problem is, right? And the way that you install, you know, you're, you're raising really good questions for how we think about what what levers we need to pull to minimize that cost, right? Because you also want to install it in a way that you can access it, right? And so you can install sort of vaults along the way. And this is another reason that highways can be really convenient for this, right? Highways have lots of on and off ramps. You basically want on and off ramps for, for operations and maintenance. Um, but the way, the way we install it and the way we're able to sense it is going to be essential to, to figuring out what those operations costs are and, and keeping them down. But you're right, historically, that has been a problem, that getting an underground line, if there's an issue back online, has taken a lot longer than an overhead line. But we've got new technologies. It, it again, goes into that question of what are we investing in and how are we designing it to make that realizable. Awesome. Okay. Well, so, and now we get to the moment that everyone's been waiting for, where we get to talk about high temperature superconductors. So this, in my view, is like the cool, I, oh my God, I'm going to do a pun here. It's going to be great, everybody. The coolest of the cool new technology. And um, not just because we get to talk a little bit about liquid nitrogen, but okay, can you say a bit about what is a high temperature superconductor, why we don't have them already as part of our grid, and what's changing that they might actually become relevant in this new world of transmission? 
Sure. So high temperature superconductors, and I'm going to get my numbers wrong here, but it's high temperature on a Kelvin scale, right? So your pun was perfect because it's still incredibly cold, right? It's, it's not high temperature to the rest of us. I mean, one of the reasons that we haven't had it is that, I mean, high temperature super, superconductors are their own sort of developing industry, right? And, and, and getting up to the temperatures that we've been able to get up to is a huge breakthrough. So yeah, so high temperature superconductors get rid of all those heat problems. You can send so much energy, right? They're superconducting and they're not sagging, right? They can send a lot of power anyway, but then you also don't have this problem, this sort of safety problem that you have. You can just send an extraordinary amount of power down a an HTS line. Uh, so there's a company, Veer is one of the companies that's that's looking at at developing and deploying, well, developing and demonstrating and then deploying this technology. So superconductors, you know, when we think about power, power is voltage and current. So the benefit of a high temperature superconductor is you can jack up that current without having to jack up the voltage and you can still get a lot of power. The reason this matters is that voltage is what determines the height of those towers. And the reason that we use high voltage is that current is where the losses are, current is where the heat happens, right? Like, so you want to have as low current as possible and as high voltage as possible using our existing conductors. But with that high temperature superconductor, sky's the limit, right? Just pump all, pump all the current you can through a much shorter tower. Uh, you're taking up less land, right? You're, you're upsetting fewer people's view shed, um, and you're just moving so much more power. I mean, this sounds super cool. I remember Veer talking about the promise of basically, you know, a standard distribution line that runs down a street, or that, at least that's what it would look like, but it would be carrying the same amount of power as one of these big high-voltage transmission lines, um, which just struck me as so cool from the perspective of actually being able to get this stuff permitted and built, given the difference in the NIMBY issues you'd confront. Um, so really exciting stuff. But same question about operating costs. If you've got, I mean, keeping these lines cool is no joke, right? Because we are talking about still very cold temperatures. So any thoughts on, on whether that's really going to create some challenges from the operational, you know, sort of cost of maintenance when you're adding cooling systems to the existing transmission lines? I mean, that's another case of we've, we've just got to see, right? I'm a big believer in innovation, right? That we got to do the, we do the demonstration, figure out what the opportunities are, and then figure out how to pull those levers down fr from a maintenance perspective. One thing that's cool about Veer is that they're overhead lines, right? So normally when we think or I don't know if, when I say normally when we think of superconductors, I don't know how normally people are thinking of superconductors. Every day. But, uh, uh, you, people were imagining like encased in underground, right? And so you had all of your undergrounding problems plus all of your superconducting problems. It's potentially different if you have an overhead line, right? And, and that's kind of a very cool innovation in the way that they're encasing those conductors so that they can still be overhead um, which is, again, not to dis-undergrounding, because I think there's tremendous opportunity there, but handle one set of challenges at a time, you know? That makes total sense. Okay. So we're getting towards the end here, and there's an entire conversation that we could have. We could probably redo this whole thing and talk about distribution systems. Um, so I don't think we're going to have time to get into that deeply today. But I did want to just raise one thing, which is that we've talked a lot about needing new transmission in order to bring new clean generation onto the grid. But there's another whole element to all of this, which is electrification, right? And particularly now that we've passed the Inflation Reduction Act with a lot of tax incentives that hopefully are going to spur electric vehicle adoption and in addition to getting us to um, 
you know, ad- additional heat pumps, lots of new uses for electricity. I just want to ask one thing, which is that, you know, the technologies we've talked about today are going to help us move clean power in order to support all these additional uses. But is there anything else that we've missed today that you think is a really important piece of the puzzle when it comes to supporting additional uses of electricity at the far end of the line? Yeah, you know, I think going back to what I said about non-wires alternatives, that transmission is not a is not a enemy to non-wires alternatives also not an enemy to local generation, right? So distributed energy resources are an absolutely essential part of that future, right? And, and getting, and it's not just rooftop solar, rooftop solar is just the easy phrase to use, right? But there's a whole variety of distributed energy resources, right? There's utility scale and there's more local and community scale. And, you know, um, energy storage is going to be essential, again, up and down that size of of home and building to local to to transmission scale storage. Like they're all partners in the solution. And so I talk about transmission because that's kind of my passion area and my expertise area. Um, but but that distribution level ability to kind of decarbonize locally um, is going to be essential too for getting the clean energy future and also providing that resilience. There's some really interesting stories um, out of Florida, I think it was, um, after the hurricane, right, where solar and storage were being brought in to kind of support like local, you know, local microgrids, essentially, because it's also hard to bring diesel in, right? Like diesel generators in in a, in post-hurricane are difficult to keep getting diesel fuel in, right? Um, and so there's a really interesting story that I was reading about that, that the solar storage or even just solar minimize the amount of diesel you had to use. So it's not quite a completely independent system yet, but it it's a lot cleaner and it can last a lot longer from a resilience perspective when you can partner sort of all these things together kind of on the journey. Um, so I, I have no illusions that transmission is our only solution, but it's an absolutely essential part of, you know, kind of a giant grab bag of of technologies that we need to get implemented. Right. Well, and it sounds like the concepts of figuring out the right way to really efficiently move power where it needs to go under a variety of different circumstances is a really key one on the distribution side as well as transmission. So that's great. Okay. One final question. Let's talk about permitting reform. Um, so, of course, we all know that Joe Manchin introduced a permitting reform bill in Congress recently that unfortunately went by the wayside pretty darn fast. Um, but I think there are some studies that are starting to pop up that are showing that permitting reform is really essential if we're going to meet the goals in the IRA, if we're going to actually see the clean energy revolution that everyone's hoping to see after a spate of really good climate legislation lately. So tell us a bit about permitting reform. Why do we need it? What specifically is included in permitting reform? And is there hope? There's always hope. I I, th- I certainly think there's hope, and 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 that's not just that's not just rose colored glasses. I, I mean, I certainly think this is open the door to an essential and ongoing conversation, and I think we're going to have it again, and and hopefully keep having it um, towards passing a permitting reform package in sort of the short term, but then also continuing those discussions because anything we can figure out and agree to, you know, potentially in the next week. I say we like <laughs> like you and. <laughs> The, the, the powers of be, right, members of Congress uh, can agree to in the next couple of months, I think it's still just going to be a down payment on figuring out what we need, right? There's kind of some essential pieces that folks have already identified that that need and can be fixed, and then continuing discussions around, like, where are we seeing other 
you know, issues and opportunities to, to get permitting right. So one of the ways that we talk about it in Niskanen is, um, is transmission line permitting, and particularly the siting part of it. So siting is deciding where the line is actually going to go. For natural gas infrastructure in the U.S., that happens at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. They've had this authority for more than 80 years that pipelines used in interstate commerce are cited at the federal level, right? And that sort of seems like a natural partnership. We talked a little bit about the history of transmission, right? And that we haven't had to move power, as much power as far historically, but we're starting to see, or we've already been seeing for decades now, but it's really becoming like a pinch point when we think about this clean energy revolution, that, that transmission is running into these same issues. Transmission has always been permitted exclusively at the state level. There's been some very, very narrow federal authority established for it, but it's kind of this multi-step, elaborate process. There's a study, and then someone else has to review it, and then the states look at it, and then the federal government looks at it. Like, it's never been successfully used. And so figuring out something that makes sense for transmission line siting is, is sort of an obvious step um, from our perspective, right? That there's just some lines that are interstate commerce. There's lots of transmission lines that just make sense within a state boundary. Lots of them. Probably three quarters of them, right? Those low voltage lines that I was describing earlier. Three quarters of the lines in the United States um, that have, I think it's actually three quarters of the lines built in the last five years have been those low voltage ones. I actually think it's even more percentage of the lines in the U.S. that are low voltage. Right? Those kind of make sense as being a state issue. But high-capacity lines are moving power back and forth. We know that. We kind of have that evidence that they're in between states. They're impacting interstate commerce. And so that should be like a federal authority. So that's something that um, there was a version of that proposed in the permitting reform package that Senator Manchin um, presented. You know, and, and I'm hoping some version of that continues to be part of the conversation because transmission is— it's also, as we've discussed, not just a clean energy issue, right? I mean, it is essential for that, but it's also essential for electric reliability and resilience. Just so much is changing in how we use power um, and how we're sort of experiencing the world around us and what that means about our power needs, um, that transmission is just essential for lots of different reasons. And so figuring out how we can rebalance you know, what makes sense as a federal authority and what makes sense as a state authority, I think, is essential. Um, and then there are other questions very much outside my expertise area on, you know, who does what level of analysis um, and, and, you know, what are the time windows and, and how do we decide when an environmental permit, for example, is enough and is there a state level review and a federal review? That's not necessarily my expertise at all, but it, it's certainly an essential part of the conversation is figuring out what is slowing things down, what is sort of essential review, and, and then what are things that are maybe just barriers that we can um, streamline or better coordinate. Right. Yeah. I think there are a lot of huge challenges here. I mean, I'm certainly in the camp of, you know, we sort of need to move towards towards a build faster strategy if we're really going to manage climate change. And at the same time, we have to reckon with the fact that from a community engagement perspective, we've done a really bad job for 
probably multiple centuries at this point of kind of figuring out the right way to to really hear the voices that need to get heard on this. So I think this is probably one of the most important things going on right now, in my view, in the policy world is figuring out how to strike that balance. Um, so, but I'm so glad to hear from you that there is hope because I think that hope combined with the very cool advances being made across the technology spectrum here uh, mean hopefully a very bright future for transmission. Um, so Liza, I really appreciate you having this conversation with me. I think this has been a lot of fun and hopefully our listeners will eat up some of the the cool tech nuggets that you've been dropping throughout the episode. Um, so thank you so much. We really appreciate having you. Thank you so much, Laura. This was thrilling to talk about and and I agree with you. It's absolutely essential um, that that we figure it out and and we get more things built. Liza Reed is the Electricity Transmission Research Manager for Climate Policy at the Niskanen Center, a think tank in Washington, D.C. She's also a grid fellow at Prime Movers Lab. What did you think? What did we miss? Let us know. Find the show on Twitter at Catalyst Pod. You can find me on LinkedIn. If you like the show today, go on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. The show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to more information on today's episode. And as always, Postscript is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf, mixing by Greg Vilfrank and Sean Marquand. Theme song by Sean Marquand. Our managing producer is Cecily Meza-Martinez. I'm Lara Pierpoint, and this is Catalyst. Catalyst.